Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting entrepreneur, very successful entrepreneur. He recently exited, you know, his, his company. Uh, I mean, exited. I mean, he's still, you know, pushing it. But, you know, there's a very interesting transaction there worth $770 million that we're going to be talking about. But again, building, scaling, financing, all of that good stuff that we like to hear he's done it numerous times, and I'm sure that you're all going to find his story quite inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Stuart Lombard. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So originally born in Richmond in Virginia, but I know that uh, you moved uh, quite a bit due to your father's uh, job. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Our life was, you know, it was interesting. I think it was chaotic in some ways, um, you know, because we moved every two or three years. Um, but it was a tremendous opportunity for me to experience, you know, different cultures and, and you know, really, I think, form part of who I am in any case in terms of just being able to, you know, integrate with new people. And, you know, we lived all over the world, including Brazil, which was, you know, probably one of my best experiences of my life. And, you know, my parents gave us quite wide latitude and, um you know, they didn't expect us home from school at any particular time. And, you know, we were kind of wandering the streets and, you know, doing our thing. And, and that, I think, you know, gave me a lot of um, confidence just in terms of, you know, resiliency and, 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 you know, the ability to to kind of manage myself and, and learn how to handle situations. And so I think that was, you know, really helpful from my, my point of view. And it's interesting, because with my own kids, I have this discussion with my wife about, you know, how carefully we should you know, monitor our kids and, and certainly having a lot of latitude helped me a ton. I love that. Now, I'm sure that it helped you a ton too dealing with uncertainty because moving, you know, that often, you know, starting new friends, you know, a new life somewhere. I'm sure that was tough for you as well. Yeah, I think certainly we probably complained at the time, but some of the things, you know, we were able to do both in terms of like, you know, being able to meet people, um, make new friends, but also learn new languages. You know, we were in you know, Brazilian school. And, you know, my parents were like, if we're here, you need to learn the language. And, and just that ability to realize that some of these things that you think would be incredibly difficult, you know, you were able to accomplish. And, and you know, that I think was, you know, was very helpful for me. So engineering and math, how do you develop the love for this? 
again, like one of the things that was interesting about my my upbringing was, you know, my dad grew up in a small lumber town. And, um, you know, one of the things, you know, it was post, he grew up post-depression. And so he was very focused on um, self-reliance and resiliency um, and also, you know, being able to make things. And so he believed actually he could make almost anything. And so, you know, while my friends were, you know, off having fun on weekends and things like that, I was either working for my dad or building something in the basement that we could have easily bought at Walmart for like $29. And, um, you know, but that also created kind of a, you know, a willingness to kind of t- tinker and try things and the belief that you actually, you know, can make things and, and that love of both the environment and making things, I think, were part of that you know, growing up experience. Now, in your case, talking about trying things, you tried corporate and you ended up, you know, with a, with a boss that was not uh, very nice to you. What, what, what was that experience like? What, what, what the hell was going on with that boss? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, first of all, I, I, there were, I had no plans to be an entrepreneur. So the fact that I'm sitting here talking to you is not because I had like a, a grand plan and, you know, I think if you had asked my university colleagues, you know, what I was going to be, they wouldn't have said, you know, entrepreneur. Um, and, um, and I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting is I think, you know, where there's chaos, there's opportunity. And, and, you know, I worked for a phenomenal company, but I had a horrible boss and he was such a jerk that literally one day I walked into his office and, you know, I said, take this job and shove it, right? And uh, I had a big stack of paper in my hands. I remember it. And I threw the papers in the air and I said, like, that's it. I quit. And, um, you know, that, you know, forced me to to figure out what my next career journey was going to be. And actually, serendipity, I was walking out of the office. This was 1994, you know, with my all my belongings that, from the office. And, um, you know, one of my colleagues said, you should really check out this internet thing. And this was 1994 when, you know, the internet was still dial up and, you know, Mark Andreessen was still a student at the University of Illinois and no one had really heard of the internet. The search engines were Archie and Veronica. There were no web browsers. And, um, you know, I looked it up and I started talking to people and, you know, I wrote a business plan because I was bored. And, you know, next thing you knew, we were in the internet service provider business and, and, you know, it was all kind of serendipity. I mean, that was quite the the journey too, no? Because you guys ended up building one of the largest internet service providers, you know, in the in the country. So, uh, so hey, that boredom, you know, I guess that boredom, you know, ended up being very productive. Now, in this case, you know, the company ended up becoming one of the largest IPOs in Canada. So, what do you think, you know, like uh, propelled, you know, that uh, that level of growth, and you know, being able because I mean, we're talking about just a couple of years, you know, with this company called InfoRamp, you know, which was your first your first baby. But what do you think, you know, like were some of those ingredients that allowed the company to grow so fast and to go public like that? Yeah, we were very fortunate on the timing. So we hit, you know, the you know right after we started, you know, uh, you know, Mark Andreessen released the the browser that was Mosaic that became Netscape. Um, you know, and, and the internet really took off. And, and one of the things that we did, which, you know, was very fortuitous is we, we thought about brand early and, you know, in those days, you know, internet service providers were largely shoestring operations, fly by night operations, and, and really catering to people who were diehard, um, you know, fans of being online. And we really tried to focus on how could we get the next group of people you know, the people who were early adopters, but were more professional, weren't going to be willing to spend, you know, all the effort and time to collect all the software and, you know, 
figure out all the issues and and so we really focused on you know a service that was not low priced it was you know relatively expensive given the alternatives but really good customer service and and really high quality uh reliable service overall and and that really propelled the company and so we were we managed to win all the sort of major national canadian accounts um you know all the major banks and all that kind of stuff because you know we were the only game in town and and that was hugely beneficial to our uh, to our future and obviously you experienced too you know the public the reporting the you know all of the admin the red tape you know how was that experience too of uh, of seeing a company that you founded going public well it was bittersweet to be honest um you know we um you know when i started you know i was going to do an mba and so i'd saved up some money to do an mba and i basically took the money that i was going to spend on my mba and my partner and i you know we invested you know that money in the business and and um you know and i thought like you know i don't know if it's going to work out or not but you know worst case i'll get like as good an education as if i had have done an mba and um you know we were we were hugely successful um and the company grew like crazy and and we had an opportunity to merge the company with two other companies and and go public in this go public transaction and at the time you know it just seemed like an outrageous amount of money and you know i had had such low expectations and you know there really hadn't been many exits in canadian uh you know tech companies and so i was like okay this sounds great and you know this is a this is just a win um unfortunately the people that we merged with were you know not great operators and 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 so the the business ultimately foundered and i think you know one of the things i i learned the hard way is that you know you put so much into a business um that you know who you partner with who you sell it to you know an exit isn't just a paycheck right and 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 really thinking about how you create a business that is you know built to last um you know that's going to be sustainable and 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 what that partner looks like um and making sure that you have aligned values is really really important because as nice as the money is it is incredibly painful to watch something that you've you know built and cared for and you know had anxiety over and you know toiled for hours and hours and hours and hours on you know just sort of dissipate into the sand because of you know mismanagement and and um you know poor execution no kidding so obviously you know as they say you either succeed or you learn but in this case you know it was both you know you saw both so that was you know quite the journey i guess you know in this case you know now that you had full visibility you know into the building scaling you know exiting all of all of the above what happened next so you know next we jumped right back into it and and um you know we we started a company that allowed you to take your data and encrypt it across the internet and so and send it across the internet and so we built one of the first virtual private networking companies um in the networking space and you know successfully built that company very rapidly um and then shortly thereafter sold it to a company called Shiva um which was in the um modem technology business and they were trying to move from you know modems where they had been you know tremendously successful they were a public company hugely hugely successful but their market was ending and so they were trying to get into the networking business um and so we successfully sold to to Shiva and and you know that was a great transaction um but again was one where you know we probably weren't that well aligned from a strategic point of view and and so you know once again i kind of moved on and looked for for different opportunities so what was the lesson that you took away with that second journey you know i think again you know same thing there was sort of this you know belief that you know 
I wanted to build something, you know, that was going to last, that would, you know, stand the test of time. And, and that really started to change the way I thought about, you know, exits and, and where we would go. Um, and so, you know, the path we took with Ecobee, I think, was very, very different. And, you know, obviously with even better outcomes than we had before. So what was the, uh, let's talk about Ecobee because what a, what a smashing, you know, success Ecobee. Eh? Uh, let's talk about how the original idea came about because, I mean, obviously at this point you had two, two companies, two exits, and then all of a sudden, you know, like it's time to, uh, hey, you know, like I think that this idea has enough legs for me to take a step at it. But before, you know, we go into Ecobee, I'd like to ask you really quickly because you did a, a little of a stint, you know, on the VC side of things. And, uh, you know, after your second transaction and you went into, into venture capital, I mean, you became a partner on this firm. You were on this firm for about eight years. And this is before Ecobee. And, uh, and I'm sure that, you know, there you were able to, to learn, you know, some of the traits of uh, pattern recognition and investments, you know, what, you know, things deserve money, what things, you know, didn't. And, and some of the good, the bad and the ugly, no, on being on the other side of the table and watching other operators. So what did you learn? let's say like the three key ingredients from some of those companies that ended up becoming smashing hits. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the great things about working in venture capital is that, um, you know, you get to see how hundreds of other people think about and run their businesses. And so, you know, before I had been in venture capital, um, you know, really the way I thought was kind of the world according to, to me, right? And, and, you know, I think, you know, being in venture capital allowed me to really look at how hundreds of other people built their businesses and really changed my point of view or opened my mind to, you know, all the different things that and different ways that, that people were building their businesses. I think certainly in terms of things like, you know, interesting new business models, um, new technologies, I think also just in terms of, you know, customers and what do customers think about and what do customers care about, um, you know, that really opened my 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 mind to kind of the breadth of opportunity and how you go about really getting product market fit. You know, those things I think I, I learned as part of that venture capital stint, which were hugely helpful for me in my Ecobee experience. And what about getting to product market fit? Like, what does that look like? And what did you learn about achieving it as fast as possible? You know, I think in the in the early days, you know, my um my thought process was really around, you know, I was building products and services that I wanted to use, right? And so, you know, I was the test customer and, and you know, probably my focus was, you know, quite a bit narrower than it, you know, it could have been or it should have been or, you know, or it should be. Um, so I think that was the first thing. I think the second thing is really around, you know, how you can, you know, test and iterate really quickly. Um, you know, and I'm not a big proponent of the massive pivot. But I think the, you know, constant small course corrections are, are really, really important. I think that's one of the you know, really interesting questions as an entrepreneur. You know, do I make a big pivot or do I stay the course and, you know, fight your way through? I feel like, you know, the Ecobee story is really one where, you know, despite all the challenges and everything that came along and all the people who told us that we were wrong and going to fail, you know, we sort of persevered through all of those criticisms and all the challenges. And that's part of why we came out the other side, you know, much better. Yeah, no kidding. Now, now, obviously, you know, after about eight years, close to nine years, you know, pushing on the other side of the table as a VC, eventually you realized that it's time to get back out there. So uh, how did you come to that realization? Because, I mean, the VC route, you know, it's, 
it's comfortable, you know, like obviously, you know, it, it's stressful. It has its own things, but it's not definitely like with the fires that you would encounter as an entrepreneur building the initial pipes of the business. No, So, so what happened there? Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like one of my, uh, you know, I remember when I was in venture capital, um, you know, and I had this, you know, beautiful office and I had an executive assistant and I had a parking spot and I had all these things that, you know, as an entrepreneur, at least in the early days, you don't have. And, and I remember the first person to leave me a voicemail message, uh, you know, was my wife. And I, I had my voicemail and it said like, Hey, you reached Stuart Lombard. You know, if this is an emergency, please press zero and someone will help you. Right. And my wife leaves a, a voicemail message for me and she's like, venture capital emergency. What the heck is that? There's no such thing as a venture capital emergency. And she hangs up the phone. And, you know, that was venture capital, right? It is a cushy job. And, um, you know, I think what it takes to be good at, at venture capital is part, part, part science. Um, you know, and I'm an analytic person and I really like, you know, getting my hands dirty and, and being involved in building something. And I think, you know, venture capital is a great profession and people who do it well, I think, do a really great job. But for me, I really enjoy building things. And I think that was what I took away from it. And so, you know, I woke up one day and said, you know what, it's just not what I want to do with the rest of my life. This is killing me. Right. And um, I, uh, you know, started looking for different opportunities. And, and that really became the impetus for how we started, you know, Ecobee. So at what point does Ecobee come to light, you know, in your radar? And you're like, my God, I think that this 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 problem is meaningful enough for me to jump in and take action. So first of all, I quit my job. So that was the first thing I did. And and as you know, part of quitting my job, I as a venture capitalist, I I had time on my hands, and I was like, okay, I'm going to reduce my environmental footprint. And I went out and I spent twenty six thousand dollars on solar panels, and I was on my way to buy a Toyota Prius. And Andrea said to me, you know, honey, like this going green thing is going to break us. And you know, by the way, you don't have a job, so stop shopping. And um, you know, that sort of kicked off this, like, there has to be a better way. How do we create, you know, practical solutions for people to reduce their environmental impact, save energy and save money. And, you know, the insight we had was that heating and cooling is 40 to 60% of your energy use. And so actually better managing your heating and cooling is the best thing that you can do to reduce your environmental impact. And, you know, thermostats are cheap. And, you know, the models in the market at the time were, you know, dumb as a doorknob, they weren't internet connected. And so we said, hey, if we can use math and science, you know, connect these things to the internet, make them phenomenally easy to use, like our other consumer electronics products, um, you know, use data like weather and energy prices, you know, how much better can we do? And in 2009, we invented the smart thermostat. And what's really cool is, uh, you know, we estimate our customers have saved over 28 terawatt hours of power, which is enough to take the cities of Chicago in Los Angeles off the grid. And so it is a, you know, from sort of humble beginnings, it's a massive, massive impact. Yeah. So for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Ecobee? Yeah. Our primary business model at the start was selling products. So we were, you know, we were selling smart thermostats and, you know, now today we're building a service layer on top of our, our hardware products. We've been expanded into smart security, which I'm really excited about. Um, and there's an incredible nexus between security and energy. Um, in terms of, you know, understanding whether you're home or not, whether you're, you know, asleep or awake, you know, really helps us automate your energy consumption and, and allows us to do a much better job. And so, you know, those two markets have been, you know, really, really great for us. Um, and so, you know, we think of ourselves as kind of like a hardware enabled service platform 
where we create, you know, phenomenal hardware. It's beautiful, looks great in your home. And then if you open it up, the inside of our product would look much more like the inside of your phone than a typical thermostat. And so we can download software to it and it can do more things over time. Um, and that enables us to create a long-term relationship with our customers and deliver new features and services over time. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that, you know, is that you need traction, you need to grow, you need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable identity. And you can do that with .tech domains. So .tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves, just like onex.tech with their advanced Androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors. So really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of .tech domains. So uh, also remember that .tech domains can do the same, you know, for your company. They are also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the DealMakers audience. Is one-year domain for $10 and a five-year domain for $50. So head now to the special URL, which is go.tech slash DealMakers. And that is, again, go.tech forward slash deal maker. So go get your own domain. So tell us what kind of uh, breakthroughs did the uh, the competitive environment against, you know, a company like Nest, you know, like uh, allowed you guys, you know, to really push yourselves and accomplish, you know, unimaginable, um, you know, outcomes. Yeah, we, um, you know, when we started, it was interesting because we invented the category. So we were first in the market and, and I remember, you know, people, would tell us how great we were and, you know, how wonderful the product was doing. And then the company was doing well and all those kinds of things. And, you know, we had to raise venture capital and, and raising ca venture capital was very difficult because when we went out to see the venture capitalists, they were like, Stuart, nobody wants to pay $200 for a thermostat, right? Nobody cares about thermostats. And, you know, by the way, nobody wants to pay $200 for a thermostat. And they looked at me like I was crazy, um, you know, and then Nest came out. And, uh, and then everyone was like, of course, everybody wants a $200 thermostat, uh, but Nest has already won. And, you know, you should just quit and go home. And, um, you know, the, the market's already been won and life is short and, you know, fail fast and, you know, just go home and start again. And I remember, you know, we'd been rejected for venture capital, I think something like 170 times. And I remember it was a really cold February day and, you know, you come down from one of those office towers after a meeting with a venture capitalist who told me like fail fast and you know get on with your life life's too short and um you know i was so stressed out that i i bummed a smoke off someone who was standing at the front entrance there not that i smoke and you know i was standing there on the corner literally like having this cigarette thinking like should i quit should i quit should i quit and i i decided i think you know then and there that you know the day that i quit is the day that you know they take the keys out of my dead hand. And, you know, I was going to, you know, persevere and persevere through. And, and that, you know, I think was a real turning point for the company, because, you know, one of the things we realized was that there's a difference between, you know, wanting to be good and actually being good, right. And we were, we were good, we were the champions of the, you know, 
you know, whatever the minor league baseball, whatever it is, right? We were, you know, we were little league champions, right? We thought we were playing in major league baseball, but we were little league champions, right? And, and I think, you know, we realized, you know, what it took to actually play in major league baseball, you know, and be successful in what good is. And that forced us to really retool and rethink about really everything we did and how to really compete in the consumer electronics business. And, you know, we tell people we compete with Apple. Not because Apple makes thermostats, they don't, but because the experience that your consumer expects is the same as the experience they have on their iPhone. And if our experience isn't that good, then frankly, we're crap, right? And so really like setting a high bar and figuring out what it takes to create that high bar, you know, really, you know, change the trajectory of the business, um, you know, and, and was seminal, I think, in our, in our, in our growth. And uh, Stuart, 15 years, eh? And, and change that you've been already pushing this. I mean, that in dog years, you know, like being this startup, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, eh? the amount of time, unbelievable. Now, now, how much capital did you guys raise uh, prior to the transaction? Roughly, you know, a little less than 200 million, I think 160 million maybe. And what was that uh, journey of, of raising that money? How did it go over the course of time from financing cycle to, to the next one? I think at the beginning, it was, you know, it was really, really hard. As I said, you know, people thought we were crazy, um, you know, and they didn't want to invest because they didn't believe in the market. Then Nest came out and, you know, it was interesting, actually, before they, before Nest, they looked at me like I was crazy. After Nest, they looked at me with pity, which was worse, actually, because they're like, okay, you're a dead man walking. Like, you know, we want nothing <laughs> to do with you. And, um, you know, we were fortunate, actually, because some of our largest customers invested in us. And so, you know, one of the things I would encourage entrepreneurs to do is that if you are having trouble raising venture capital, is go to some of your large customers, if you have large customers, and see if they'll invest in the business. And, and you know, we were very fortunate that, um, you know, we had, uh, you know, two or three of our largest customers invest in the business, uh, which really got us through the, through the difficult years. Um, and that was, that was super, super helpful. And uh, tell us about this transaction. Tell us about the acquisition. How did the acquisition come about? We were, you know, we were really thinking about, you know, where to take the business and, and how to take it to the next level. And I think, um, you know, we had an opportunity to, to do an IPO. You know, SPAC transactions at the time were also, you know, very hot. And so, you know, we were considering potentially doing a SPAC transaction. Um, and, as, and then we were thinking about raising capital privately. And so I think we had sort of those three avenues to to look at. Um, and while we were working on the, you know, the IPO transaction, um, you know, one of the investors in the, in, in the potential IPO was Generac and, and they, um, you know, they were excited about the opportunity. They saw a good, uh, you know, market fit with what they were doing and their strategy of where they wanted to go. And, um, and really we had great, you know, vision and alignment. And so, you know, that kind of, change the dialogue from, hey, you know, we're interested in investing in your in your IPO transaction or private transaction to, you know, we'd like to buy the company. And I think, you know, one of the really great things about, you know, the combination with Generac, which was different than the previous, um, you know, transactions I'd done in my career was that I think we really had like quite a few shared values and a shared vision of where we thought the world was going and what we needed to do to, to be successful. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that was very different for me was really not seeing this as an exit. Like everyone sees it as an exit. We talk a lot about, you know, how we have impact at scale. And if we think about our mission of, you know, improving everyday life while creating a more sustainable world, like 
how do we create a more sustainable world? We have to do that at scale. And that meant getting into things like solar and storage um, and really growing our, you know, our scale. And, and, and Generac allows us to do that and, and frankly, you know, advanced our product roadmap by about five years. And so, you know, really, I don't see this transaction as an exit. It's one of the reasons that I'm still here. I, I, I'm really passionate about the mission and, and where we're going. And, and Generac was really a mechanism that allowed us to, you know, further our mission and, and in line with that, further their mission as well. And so it's been, it's been really exciting. And I think, you know, again, one of the things I would, you know, caution entrepreneurs out there, you know, so many people, especially when you're in the venture capital world are all about the exit and what the dollars are and, you know, dollars are wonderful, but, you know, you want to build an enterprise that's built to last, you know, something that you can look back on and say, I'm really proud that I was a part of that. And I built that. And, and, you know, Generac has definitely given us that opportunity. And so why I'm still here and why I'm super excited about it. Hey, Stuart, 770 million. I mean, unbelievable. What did it feel like that day when you inked the deal and all of a sudden you realize, hey, wow, I can't believe that we've built it to, to, to this level, to this type of value? Yeah, amazing. Amazing. Like it's, it's been an incredible uh, journey, right? And there was, you know, clearly, you know, I think across the team, I'm just so proud of the team and, and, and the work that people have, been, have put in and, and really the learning journey that we've been on. You know, I tell people, you know, when we started, you know, we were seven people in a room and, you know, I was the CEO, but I was really a product manager, right? And, um, you know, the, all of us have, I think, you know, kind of reinvented ourselves, you know, as the business has grown. And, you know, what's good when you're, you know, seven people is different than what's good when you're 50 people to 200 people to 600 people where we are now, you know, the skill sets you need to create and what it takes to be good and what it takes to compete with, you know, some of the largest players like Google and Amazon and Honeywell, um, you know, that's pretty exciting challenge and, and, you know, constantly reinventing yourself and, and understanding, you know, what great would be. And I think, you know, when we started, it was really cool because people said like, you know, nobody cares about thermostats and what are you going to do six months from now? And the implication was that, you know, thermostats were as good as they were ever going to be. Right. And we're into it 16 years and, you know, we're talking about AI and machine learning and, you know, vision and, um, you know, voice and, and we're using sensor fusion and radar technology. And, you know, it's really just been a journey of, of learning and, and, and reinvention. And we've really pushed, I think, you know, innovation in the category. And, and, you know, one of the reasons I think we've been able to, to compete and, and survive really well against some really formidable competitors like Google and Amazon and Honeywell. So obviously your, your third transaction third company, third transaction. Hey, what, what a good batting average, man, Stuart. Unbelievable. Now, now, now the, the third time around, you know, I'm sure that uh, you were very careful on how you went, you know, about choosing who you would uh, partner up with. So what did you for sure wanted to make sure that you got, that you got right on this third time around? I think, you know, really focusing on and understanding what the plan is going forward right? What is the plan going forward? You know, what are the things that we want to accomplish? Um, how do we add strategic value to the acquiring company? And then how does the acquiring company add strategic value to us? And I think if you can map out those things, you can understand whether, you know, the acquiring company is going to take you on the path that you want to go, or whether they're on a different path and, you know, you want to go right and they want to go left and, you know, which is only going to end in, you know, in heartache. And so, you know, we spent quite a bit of time, although, you know, again, to be honest, like I think culturally, 
we were very well aligned. We're a very transparent culture. They're a very transparent culture. And we were like, here's what we want to do. You know, no surprises, you know, here are the you know, challenges and opportunities. And they were also very clear about, you know, here are the challenges and opportunities. And so, you know, pretty quickly we realized that, you know, there were a lot of things that we could bring to them. And there were a lot of things that they could bring to us. And and so the match was was, I think, really, really great. And you know, it's, uh, they've been wonderful. Uh, you know, they've done everything that they said they were going to do. Um, and I think the partnership's been, you know, really strong and, and great, uh, which is not like the other experiences I had, you know, previously, uh, which ended in much more painful outcomes. So you were talking about the excitement of what's, of what is to come now on, on this next chapter for Ecobee. So, um, in that regard, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight. And you wake up in a world where the vision of Ecobee is fully realized. What does that world look like? I think it's a world where, you know, we live in incredibly sustainable communities. We live in a world right now where, you know, energy is expensive, it's scarce, and it's dirty. And I think we're moving to a world where energy is clean, cheap, and plentiful. And uh, that's a very different world. And I think, you know, it's really being driven by, by three core trends. Um, the first is just the move to renewables. And if you look at renewables, they're already the cheapest energy out there. You know, you can buy solar on a 20-year per hour purchase agreement in California for two cents a kilowatt hour. It's by far the cheapest power anywhere. And if you look at why coal and gas is being retired, it's not so much government policy, it's just economics. They can't compete at two cents a kilowatt hour. And Natural gas costs more than two cents a kilowatt hour. So even if you don't have, didn't have to build a plant, just the marginal cost of production is is more expensive. And so that's the first component. The second component is really around the electrification of everything. And if you think about the major consumers of electricity, which are things like transportation and heating and cooling, you know, electric cars are already better than internal combustion cars. And people are going to buy electric cars not because governments mandate them, but just because they're better and more fun to drive. Um, and similarly, if you look at things like heat pump technology, you know, a heat pump is two to four times more efficient than a gas-fired furnace. And so, you know, why would you put in a gas-fired furnace if you could put in an electric heat pump? And, and so these technology trends are, are, are turning the world to electrifying, you know, maybe not everything, but a lot of things. Um, so that combination of the decarbonization of the grid, um, the electrification of most things, um, and then digital connectivity and digital connectivity, you know, changes a lot of things. And so, you know, one of the things that we're doing is, you know, we're building smart appliances that understand what's happening on the grid, understand power prices, understand um, carbon content, and they'll shift when they use energy to take advantage of low cost carbon free power. And so if you look at California right now, you know, on an average midday, the price of power in California, on average, can be minus six cents a kilowatt hour. In other words, they'll pay you six cents a kilowatt hour to use power because they have so much midday solar, right? And conversely, you know, late afternoon, it becomes very expensive. And so if you're a smart appliance, if you're a, you know, a thermostat, for example, you know, I might say like, I'll cool your house from, you know, 75 degrees to 73 degrees when power is free and I'll let it coast in the late afternoon when power is expensive. And you can create, you know, tremendous outcomes for people. And so, you know, those three trends, you know, I think the, the decarbonization of the electrical grid, the electrification of most things, and the connection of things so that you have, you know, context and understanding um, will really change the world for the better. And, and I think, you know, we have this, this 
future vision of, you know, just cleaner, cheaper energy, which is tremendously exciting. That's incredible. Now, we've been talking about the future here, so I want to talk about the past, but with a lens of reflection. Let's say I was able to put you into a time machine, and I bring you back in time to that moment where you are still in your father's house, bored to death, you know, writing, you know, pen to paper, figuring out, you know, like what business plan, that, what's, what's that going to look like? Let's say you're able to show up right there on the spot and, and sit down with that younger self and have the opportunity of giving that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? First of all, I'll start by saying you don't know what happens on the path you didn't take, right? So this is, you know, there's a big assumption that, you know, this path would be a better path. And, and you know, as I said before, I think, you know, when you're very small, the things that make you good, the fact that you clean out the waste baskets, that you, you know, work around the clock, that you, you know, you're the salesperson, you're the accountant, you're the engineer, you're like all these things, can, you know, are, are really important when you're a startup. But, you know, as you grow, you know, those qualities won't necessarily take you to the next level. And so, you know, the first thing I think is just thinking about, you know, being aware and reinventing yourself. The second thing I would say is, is really, I wish I had to spend more time on, you know, brand culture and strategy, right? And I think, you know, you're so busy, you know, just trying to get, keep the lights on and the doors open that, you know, I anyway, did not spend a lot of time on that. Um, the challenge is when you scale, those things become really, really important. And, um, you know, when you're 10 people in a room or 20 people in a room or even 50 people, you know, culture is easy because everybody knows everyone. But once you scale beyond, you know, 150 people, which is Dunbar's number, um, you know, people don't know you. And then culture and values and strategy become really, really important. And I remember one day I was, you know, sitting in the office and I overheard somebody, you know, whatever, at the desk next to me going like, I don't understand our strategy and I don't know what we're doing. Right. And that like hit me like, you know, right through the heart because I'm like, it's so obvious to me. How can we not know? Right. And um, and that was really, uh, you know, an alarm bell that said, you know, we need to spend time on this. But it is, you know, having clear understanding of what you stand for um, and your brand to customers. Like if you think about the brands that you that you really admire. Right. Those are brands that stand for something that 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 every interaction you have with that company supports those brand attributes. And so, you know, spending time really understanding, you know, what you stand for. And that clearly is closely related to your values, right? Your values and your culture, um, you know, what you reward, you know, the types of people who do well in your company, you know, writing those things down is really important because, you know, as you, you know, in the beginning, you might do all the hiring, but as you grow, you can't do all the hiring. And so, you know, how do you make sure that people are going to, you know, support and grow what you're building? And then tied to that is, I think, strategy. And, and you know, again, in the beginning, when you're, when you're just trying to get like, you know, 2% share of a, of a market that's growing really quickly, strategy doesn't matter that much. You know, as the market starts maturing and, you know, you kind of think about how you grow, you can grow because the market grows or you can grow because you take share from your competitors. When the market growth rate starts slowing and you have to take, you know, growth from your competitors by taking, you have to get growth by taking share from your competitors. You know, in the beginning, you can kind of pick off the week and, and again, like growth is easy. But, you know, when you have to take share from from your best competitors, 
that's really hard to do. You know, and when we think about taking share from Google, for example, like that is hard. <laughs> I'll tell you that is very hard. Um, and so that's where strategy, I think, becomes really, really important. And so, you know, if you can start thinking about those things early, um, you know, brand, culture values and strategy, you know, you're just way ahead of the game. And, and when you're ready to scale, it'll just be a lot easier because it'll already be ingrained in the, um, you know, in the DNA of the company. I love it. So Stuart, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say, hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Best way is Stuart at ecobee.com, uh, S-T-U-R-T at ecobee.com. And yeah, please send me any questions. And if I can be helpful, I'd be happy to do that. Wow, easy enough, Stuart. Well, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today with Addis. It has been an honor to have you here. Awesome. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.